Let's open God's word this evening to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we will read the first 16 verses, and the text will be comprised of the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly framed together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Thus far we read God's word this afternoon. The text for this afternoon's sermon will be the first six verses. Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This past week I was informed that your elders are currently conducting family visitation. And that the elders of the congregation decided to use this particular passage of Scripture to draw from the first part of Ephesians chapter 4. And I was also told that there was never a sermon preached from this text, and evidently that's not the regular practice here, or at least has not been in the last several years. And it's in light of all of that that I decided to preach a sermon on the first six verses of this chapter with a view, thinking that it might be helpful, helpful to those who have already had family visitation. For though the elders have already visited you and brought this word to bear upon your particular family and your particular life, nevertheless, 
a sermon on the same passage can take what was already brought by the elders in the home and reconfirm what has been brought. So there's value for those who've already had family visitation, and there's value for those who have yet to have family visitation, and that hearing a sermon on this passage can be an excellent way of preparing for the upcoming visit so that going into the visit, both elders and members have an understanding of the text, and then the elders can take that word and bring it to bear on the particular family that they are visiting. And again, hearing that word brought twice is valuable. Because this is indeed a very important word. And the importance of Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6 is evident from where these six verses fit into the overall context of the book. The book of Ephesians divides very neatly into two halves. The first three chapters are what we might call the doctrinal section of the book in which the emphasis is on instruction in the truths of God's Word, particularly the Apostle Paul impresses upon the church at Ephesus the astounding riches that are given to the church for the sake of Jesus Christ, that we are now blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. That's the first three chapters. In chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul transitions into a section in which the emphasis is on the practical application of the truth set forth in the first three chapters. He takes those things and brings them to bear upon our lives. That's the broad context and structure of the book. And what's noteworthy is that the very first specific application is this one. A call to keep the unity of the church. Paul did not just pick at random which one of the applications he wanted to start with. There's good reason. He started with this one because it's so crucially important. And thus it's for good reason that your elders have chosen this passage for family visitation. And it's for good reason that though the elders will bring this word of God to bear upon the individual families, we nevertheless hear a sermon on this text. So this afternoon, let's consider Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, using as our theme, endeavoring to keep the unity. First, we'll look at the unity that we have, and there the focus will be on verses 4 through 6. Second, we look at the exhortation to keep it, and there we'll look at verses 2 and 3. And then finally, the motivation to keep it, where the focus will be on verse 1. Endeavoring to keep the unity, the blessed unity we have, the exhortation to keep it, and the motivation to keep it. The main point of this passage is the exhortation, endeavor to keep the unity. But before we understand the exhortation, we must see that the foundation upon which that exhortation is built is the fact that we do, in fact, have unity. We confess that each and every single Sunday when in the Apostles' Creed we confess that we believe an holy Catholic church. Or we could say one holy Catholic church. That's a part of our confession. And even if it's only implied in the Apostles' Creed, our Belgic Confession makes that explicit. For in Article 27, we confess this. We believe and profess one Catholic and or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by his Holy Ghost. There is one church of Jesus Christ. That's one of the attributes of the church, one of the characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ. And now in saying that, we must recognize that we are saying that really about the church invisible, 
And we need to remind ourselves of that distinction that we make in Reformed theology between the church invisible and the church visible. The church invisible being the elect body of Christ. That is, the, the whole company of God's elect people whom Christ has died for that we believe by faith because you cannot see it with your eyes. That church is made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue from, and of God's people from the beginning of time to the end of time. That's the church invisible. But now that church invisible comes to visible manifestation in specific places at specific times in history so that we can speak of the, the visible church. And whole Protestant Reformed church is a visible church, an expression, a manifestation of the body of Christ. When we say that there is one church, that there's a fundamental unity to the church of Jesus Christ, we are saying that about the church invisible. And that unity is a, a spiritual unity. It's not a unity in institution. It's not uh, a unity in organization. And we say that over against the Roman Catholic Church, which says, yes, there's one church, and we are that one church, the Roman Catholic Church, that the oneness of the church according to them is to be under the one Pope who is the, the vicar of Christ over the church. But that's not our unity. Our unity is a, a, a spiritual unity rather than a unity that comes from all living in the same place or at the same time or some other thing. So the church is one. There's a fundamental unity that we have. And now, having stated that, we need to recognize that it's based on Scripture. And especially the book of Ephesians, perhaps as much or more than any other book, teaches us that truth. It's a part of the broad context. For example, in chapter 2, verse 14, we read this, For he, referring to Christ, is our peace who hath made both one. And now the both, in light of the context, is Jews and Gentiles. Christ has made both Jews and Gentiles to be one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us so that there's this unity in the church. That also comes out in the passage that we're considering. For example, in chapter 4, verse 3, we're we have this exhortation, endeavor to keep the unity. Not initiate, not establish, keep it. And that calling implies that there's already a unity there, and then the calling is to keep it, as we'll talk more about in the second point. But now the main part of the book of Ephesians that teaches us this true, the oneness, the unity of the church, is verses 4 through 6. In fact, there is perhaps no clearer statement in all of Scripture concerning the unity of the church than Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, where we read, There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You note that you notice the repeated use of that word, one, one this, one that, one this. And the point is, as God's people, we all have this in common. So that there's a unity that we already have as God's people. And in the bulk of this first point, we are going to go through those seven statements that are made in verses 4 through 6. The seven things that we all have together as one people. First, according to verse 4, there is one body. And the body here is obviously the body of Jesus Christ. Christ is our head and we are members of that body and there is only one body of Jesus Christ. Because of that, there's a, a unity that we have. A unity in spite of the diversity because we are very different members. We are not all eyes or ears. We are not all hands or feet, but Christ gives to each one of us a unique place, a unique station within the body so that there's a diversity 
that we find in the church of Jesus Christ. But that diversity in no way takes away from the fundamental unity. In fact, it only makes it all the more beautiful in that all these different body parts are brought together into one body so that there's a unity that is overarching compared to the diversity. There's one body. That, first of all, is our unity. Second, verse 4 teaches us that there is one Spirit. The Spirit being the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And we're all given that same Spirit. This is the Spirit who was given to Christ without measure and whom Christ now sends forth as His own Spirit to live and to dwell within us. And that unifies us. Because it means that we all have the same Lord and giver of life dwelling within us and giving us the life of Christ. And though the Spirit gives to us a diversity of gifts, as verses 8 and following will teach, rather 7 and following teaches, those gifts are all to be used for the same purpose, with a view to serving the body so that the fact that we all have the same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, shed abroad to live in our hearts, means we are united to each other. That's our unity. Third, according to verse 4, there is a unity of hope, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Now when it speaks of the hope of your calling, to understand what's in view, we can back up to chapter 1, verse 18, where the apostle, pray, the apostle prays, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. So same phrase, hope of his calling. And now we're told what exactly is meant by that and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So that the hope in view here is the hope of our eternal inheritance to live with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And there is one hope that we all share together that serves to unify the, us because it means as God's people, we're all headed to the same destination. We're all going to live and dwell together in the new heavens and the new earth. But not only is there a forward-looking unity, but the point is that already now there's this unity. Because as pilgrims and strangers, we all have that same goal in view. We can lock arm together and walk shoulder to shoulder down life's path as one people who have one hope, namely life with our God. There's a unity that we have. That comes out from the fact that, fourthly, we have one Lord. Verse 5, one Lord, the Lord being the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have one Redeemer. That's a part of what it means that He's our Lord. Every one of us by nature was enslaved to sin and to Satan, but our Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us. And oh, the cost of it. Not all the gold and silver of this world, but He redeemed us with His own precious blood so that together we are his redeemed people. And what is more, he's our one ruler. That's the other, di- the, the other main idea of Christ being Lord. He's redeemer, that makes him Lord, and he's ruler. That's another sense in which he's Lord. Because he's now sitting at God's right hand, ruling over all, and now we all serve this one Lord Jesus Christ. Together we are citizens of his spiritual kingdom, and there's a unifying principle to that so that together as his people we willingly bow the knee to this Lord that in the fourth place fifth our unity is that we have one faith that's the next statement in verse five one Lord one faith now interestingly here interestingly faith here does not refer really to the content of our faith That's interesting because that is indeed a part of our unity, that we all believe the same thing. 
And that's why our creeds and confessions are called the three forms of unity. Those creeds and confessions are a summary of what we believe, the content of our faith, and the fact that we believe that together is a very important part of our unity. And there are plenty of other scripture passages that teach that very truth, but that's not the main point of this verse. Because one faith here in verse 5 is referring to the fact that we all trust in the same atoning blood of Jesus Christ so that the unity is that there's one object of faith. Christ and Him crucified. We're all looking to Christ and because all of us have our spiritual eyes directed to the same person, Jesus Christ, that makes us one. There's a unity that we have in faith. Sixth, there's a unity because there's one baptism. That's the next statement in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We've all been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We have all been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit so that we have His name placed upon us. And you see how this unifies us because a part of the symbolism of baptism is that we are now separated from the wicked world and brought together as the church of Jesus Christ, as His covenant people. So that to be baptized is to be distinguished, separated from this world and brought into the church. That's our unity. We are God's set-apart people. We are one. And that's because we have one bo- there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and finally, one God and Father. That's where the apostle ends. We all have the same adoptive Father who has brought us into His covenant family so that we are spiritual brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. And because that's true, what's said in the rest of verse 6 also applies. We read, One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now that's not being said of every single person on this earth, head for head, but as all those who are brought into the family. God is above all. That, he, that is, He rules over all of us. He, he's in control of all of us. He's, he's through all and that He blesses us in and through Jesus Christ and He's in us all by His Spirit who dwells within our hearts. We all have that in common. Every one of these seven things. And note well, this is a statement of fact. The King James gets it right when it it states these things are true. It's not, let there be one body, let there be one faith, or whatever may be. But it's saying, no, this is true. This is a, a reality. And it's on the basis of this that the main point that we are making in this first point is that We are unified. We are one in Jesus Christ. And notice that the establishing of this unity is the work of our triune God. Did you notice that all three persons are mentioned? As we go through, as we went through verses 4 through 6, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul starts with the Spirit. And he starts with the Spirit because it's the Spirit who is sent by Christ to live and to dwell within us, to unite us to Christ, and thus to one each other. The Spirit is the one who affects this unity, who, who makes it happen, if we can put it that way. And then in verse 5, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, spoke of one Lord being the Lord Jesus Christ. And he moves from the Spirit to the Son because the Son is the one who purchased this unity. This is one of the blessings of salvation that He accomplished for us, that He earned for us on our behalf. And then having mentioned the Spirit and the Son, the Apostle brings up the Father. 
And he mentions him last because he is the source of this blessing. He is the one who sent the Son into this world to accomplish our salvation. And he's the one who gave the Spirit to the Son who is then sent by the Son to live and to dwell within us so that this unity that we have is the work of the triune God. He's the one who has established that. And what a precious gift this is. It is indeed a gift. Not something we've earned, not something that we've accomplished. But as we've just demonstrated, this is something God himself gives to the church. And we need to value it. This is something we are to treasure, to hold dear. He's made us one. So that there are many, though there are many different people sitting here tonight, and though there are far more of God's people found over the length and breadth of this earth, together we can say, we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. We have unity. And it's only when we treasure that unity, it's only when we have a high view of that unity, that we will ever try to keep it. Because that is indeed the exhortation that comes to us in light of the unity that we have, having seen we are one through the work of the triune God. There comes to us the exhortation to keep that unity. And that's what we see, especially in verses 2 and 3. Verse 3, first of all. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3 sets before us the exhortation itself. And that's what we want to consider first of all. And then we'll come to verse 2, which teaches us the manner, how we are to go about this. First, the exhortation itself. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And now when we're called to keep this unity in light of everything that we have already said, it should be clear that this, does, this calling does not mean that the unity of the church is now dependent upon us and how well we do in heeding this calling. Because as we just established, this unity is something we already have. And it's the work of the triune God to establish this unity and the reality is that nothing, no one, can ultimately disrupt that fundamental unity of the church. Not even the devil himself can tear apart the church because, as we indicated in the first point, we, are talking, we had been talking about the unity of the invisible church, that elect body. We are united to Jesus Christ and thus to one another and thus to one another, and there's nothing that can disrupt that. And therefore, when we read verse 3, the point is not that, well, God is the one who establishes the unity. He, he, he brings us together, but now it's on you to keep it together. That's not the point. But the point is that because God has brought us together as one church, we are now to live like it. So that the point being made is you are one, and now act like it, live like it, live in harmony with the fundamental unity that we have as God's people. The church is spiritually one, and now it's to show that. But now having stated that, we want to become more 
concrete, more specific, so that if we ask the question, well, what does it mean then to keep the unity, we can use two words that help us, and they both start with M. First, keeping the unity means manifesting that unity. Show it. Express it. Let it become visible and let it be visible in the visible congregation. So that this reality, the oneness of the church that applies to the church invisible, that spiritual body is to become manifest, visible in the local congregation. In specific church institutes in whole Protestant Reformed Church. Calling is to manifest it. We're to manifest this unity in coming together as believers in establishing local congregations. But more than that, that means living together in peace and unity and harmony together within the local church. But then if we think more broadly, Manifest the unity means federate with other churches that are one in the faith. And beyond that, manifest the unity means seek to establish sister church relationships with God's people in other nations who are likewise one in the faith. The church is one. Now let it be seen. That, first of all, is the specific calling that comes to us. Manifest the unity that applies to the invisible church, let it be seen in the visible church. But then secondly, we are to maintain that unity. That is the unity that we are to manifest, as we've already said. The unity of the church invisible, that's God's work. And nothing can disrupt that. Nothing can break that apart. But when we're talking about the manifestation of that unity, well, at times that does become marred. At times it's defaced. At times it's hidden. And surely as Protestant Reformed churches We know that all too well in light of the last couple of years. We know what it is to have the manifestation of our unity disrupted. Unless the calling of the Word of God to us is maintain it, guard it, preserve it, Protect it. And to do your utmost in this regard. Because that's the strong language that's found here. Endeavor in this. Notice the wording here in verse 3. The main point is keep this unity, as we've explained, that means manifest it and maintain it. But the Apostle Paul does not start by simply saying, keep the unity, but he puts a word in front of that, endeavoring to keep the unity, striving to keep the unity, doing our utmost to keep the unity, taking pains to keep the unity. That's the point of that word. Do your utmost And this is to be true at all times. Because the particular verb that's used here is put in what's called the present tense in the original language so that the idea is that this is a call for ongoing, continual action. This is not a one-time thing. This is not a a part-time thing. But this is an ongoing calling. Endeavor to keep the unity. And note well, that's... God's own word. It's not mine. And that needs to be set over against those who would object to this. Would say, 
You're calling us to endeavor, to strive, to take pains, to make every effort. Well, that that sounds awfully man-centered. And maybe there's even a part of us that shies away from this language. But this is the language that the Spirit inspired Paul to use. This is God's Word that comes to the church of Jesus Christ. Endeavor to keep the unity. That's the exhortation. And what's noteworthy is the specific manner that we are to do this. Verse 3 tells us the exhortation itself, the main calling. Verse 2 is telling us how we are to go about keeping the unity. Verse 2 reads, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. We keep the unity with all lowliness and meekness. Lowliness is humility. Having a humble opinion of oneself that comes from an understanding of our littleness, as well as a deep knowledge of our own sinfulness. And that's so important for unity. Because it's only when we are filled with all lowliness that we will ever put others before ourselves. It's only when there is this lowliness that we will live according to God's Word in Philippians 2, verse 3, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And this lowliness comes from Christ. Who said about himself, I am meek and lowly. This lowliness comes from the one who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Lowliness. Next, the text mentions meekness. A close synonym, but slightly different. And that meekness refers to gentleness. This is the virtue of not being overly impressed with one's own self-importance. And it's so important that we have this meekness because this is what makes us gentle in our interactions with each other. It's this virtue that makes us very, very slow, almost reluctant to ever insist on my right or my way. It was this meekness that characterized Abraham in his interactions with his nephew Lot when there was a contention between the two. Abraham said, you pick which way you want to go, where you want your flocks to feed. Though Abraham Though the promise had been given to Abraham that the land would be given to him, Abraham does not insist on his right and say, well, I'm the older one here. I'm your uncle, and now I get to insist on the best. But he defers. That's meekness. And that meekness comes when we recognize that everything that we have has been given to us. I don't have the right to anything, not anything physically, not anything spiritually. It all comes from God through Jesus Christ. Meekness. Then the Apostle Paul goes on to say, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Long-suffering is patience. It's being slow to anger. It's the virtue that keeps us from retaliating when others provoke us. And how important that is for unity. Because while we all have one Lord, we all all also share something else in common. Our sinful natures. Every one of us gets that old man of sin from the oldest man, namely Adam. It's been passed down onto every one of us so that every one of us is a sinner. And that means in the church we are going to be sinned against. 
It ought not surprise us when others offend us in some way. We should expect it. And when it happens, we're to be long-suffering. Even as God has been long-suffering to us. How many times have we sinned against Him? And our sins against Him are far greater than any sin that any brother or sister in Christ could commit against me. We are to suffer long with each other. And finally, the Apostle Paul says, forbearing one another. Forbearing one another. That is, we are to bear with, we are to endure the the weaknesses, the sins of others. So that even if that person never changes, even if that person always has that that quirk about them and they, they never grow out of it, I am to forbear. And to do so with a proper attitude. Notice the Apostle Paul says, forbearing one another in love. So that it's not just, well, someone offended me, someone provoked me, and I'm going to avoid an outward reaction, but in my heart... I'm going to allow bitterness to fester. I'm going to hold a grudge. That's not the calling. But we are to forbear in love. Knowing that God first loved us in Jesus Christ and gave His Son to die for us. And knowing His love for us, we then want to love one another. And in all of this, the Apostle Paul is setting before us the manner in which we are to keep the unity. And is it not striking what he's, the instruction we find here? It has to do with my attitude concerning myself. By nature, we're very proud people. By nature, we are filled with self-love and The first two that come to us in verse 2 are lowliness and meekness, having a low and humble view of myself. And then the next two have to do with how I respond when others sin against me. Because the default is that I get angry. I get defensive. I, I retaliate. I lash out. Unless the call is be long suffering, forbear with one another. Because the, the pride, the, the self-centeredness, the, the anger, the lashing out, all that disrupts that manifestation of the unity. It all counters that. So then when God's word comes to us and says, endeavor to keep the unity, and we say, how? What does that look like? Verse 2 is our answer. So is this you, child of God? Is this me? Is verse 2 a description of any one of us? Are we endeavoring To keep the unity in whole Protestant Reformed Church. We have good reason to do so. There's a motivation that comes to us, especially from verse 1. And the motivation to strive to keep the unity is thankfulness, gratitude. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Notice, therefore, I beseech you. And what those words are doing are establishing a link, a connection between the first three chapters of 
the book of Ephesians and chapters 4 through 6 that follow. And it's more than just a, a link saying these two things are all one epistle. But the connection is that in light of all of the blessings that are described in chapters 1 through 3, therefore I beseech you out of gratitude for that, out of thankfulness for everything that's already been said, now live in this way. Now strive to keep that unity. That's the connection. So that the motivation is thankfulness for all of the blessings that are described in chapters 1 through 3 and what blessings they are. The first three chapters emphasize that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. The first three chapters teaches us, teach us that from a spiritual point of view, we are billionaires. Christ opens his hand wide as he pours out his blessings upon the church. And among those blessings is the blessing we talked about in the first point. This unity. That though we're all different people with different personalities and different backgrounds, yet we've all been made one. What a blessing. And standing behind all of it is the work of Christ. The one who endeavored in his work set before him. Take that word that we are tempted to shy away from, endeavor, and apply it first and foremost to Christ. He is the one who made every effort, who took pains in all of his work, bring about our salvation. He's the one who exerted himself and did so continually. It was not a one-time thing. It was not a part-time thing. But it was an all-the-time thing. And that was true his whole life as he lived that life of perfect obedience. He was endeavoring, striving to fulfill all righteousness, to keep every one of the commandments on our behalf so that his righteousness, his obedience could be imputed to us. And he was the one endeavoring in all of his suffering as he went to the cross of Calvary to endure the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. He took pains to make sure that he drank every last drop of that cup. He endeavored so that he can come to say to us with regards to our salvation, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. So that his endeavoring is the basis of our salvation. And it's only when we have that foundation that we can then come to this word of God, which calls us to endeavor. So that we understand my endeavoring is not in order to earn a part of my salvation. My endeavoring is not a part of what establishes the unity of the church. But my endeavoring is out of gratitude, out of thankfulness for his endeavoring. And what is more, my endeavoring is not something that I have the strength for. It's not something that's found in me. But the strength comes from him. And from his spirit who is given to each one of us who works in us the willing and the doing. It's when we understand that. That we can then come back to that calling. The exhortation of verse 3. Endeavor to keep the unity. Looking to him for our motivation. Looking to him for our strength. And all of that is what it means to walk worthily of our calling. It's the one part of the passage that we have yet to touch upon. Verse 1. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation, and really, we could translate that, of the calling wherewith ye are called. Walk worthy of the calling, or vocation, wherewith ye are called. When it speaks of our walk, it's talking about how we live our lives, our conduct, our behavior, our manner of life. When it speaks of our calling, it's talking about that effectual, saving calling, whereby we've been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. And now it connects the two. Walk worthy of your calling. Live in such a way that is in harmony with the fact that you've been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. That's the word of God in chapter 4, verse 1. And this is not the only place in Scripture that we find this type of language. For example, Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation, that is your walk of life, be as it becometh the gospel. Colossians 1, verse 10, that ye walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The point of all of these passages is that as those who have salvation in Jesus Christ, who've been given all of these astounding blessings, we are to now live in such a way that our lives are in harmony with that. That is, we are to live out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, for the fact that we are now blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So may God fill our hearts with thanksgiving and work in us to make a small beginning in endeavoring to keep the unity. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for making us one as thy people chosen in eternity and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Help us now to live in harmony with thy work of making us one. Help us to manifest and to maintain the unity that we have. Work that in us by the Spirit of Christ. We pray this for Christ's sake alone. Amen.